0: Think for a moment about the last time you went to a wedding ceremony. Maybe it was your wedding ceremony. Maybe it was somebody else's wedding ceremony. After 30 years of ministry, I have now done my fair share of weddings throughout the years. And I know from meeting with brides and grooms, there are any number of different decisions to make. There's the decision about the bride's dress and what the groom's going to wear there's the wedding venue, there's the rehearsal dinner menu, there's bridegrooms and bridesmaids, there's the guest list, there's just all these decisions to be made. And occasionally I get drawn into those decisions, but mostly my job as a pastor is to oversee what we call the the covenant ceremony. And so as part of the covenant ceremony, the bride and the groom make vows to one another in the presence of God and in the presence of their families and in the presence of their friends to be faithful to To one another, to remain committed to one another in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. You're familiar with that language. I also, as part of that covenant ceremony, get to give a little sermon, a mini sermon that we sometimes call a homily, or we call it the charge sometimes. And essentially, the charge is a very short sermon where I address the bride and the groom and I remind them about the purpose of marriage, but then I also talk to them about how that purpose in their marriage is to be achieved. And I'll often begin that charge with a story about a couple who has done it well over the course of an entire lifetime, how they forgave one another for their inevitable shortcomings, how they practice loving one another well, and how they often, uh, often sacrifice their individual preferences for the good of the family or for the good of one another. Very often after the covenant ceremony or the wedding ceremony, I'll have people come up to me and they will genuinely thank me for reminding them of what marriage was intended to be and how a good marriage is intended to operate functionally although we'd never say it this way because it's not very romantic but a wedding ceremony serves to clarify the vision and the values of a godly marriage in the same way here at Seven Hills Fellowship occasionally usually in January at the very beginning of the year We have a little mini series where we talk about the vision and the values of the church in order to remind people of what the church is supposed to do and how we are to do it so last week we looked at the vision for seven hills fellowship about how we are called to work and to pray towards the invisible kingdom of god becoming visible in rome georgia and how we when we do that that ultimately flourishing results not only in our own hearts but in the lives of our families and the lives of those people we love and ultimately we want to see that flourishing work itself out here in our community of Rome, Georgia. Now what we didn't talk about is how we're called to do that. And I would argue that every church is called to do five different things, worship, teaching, fellowship, mercy, and justice. We heard about that this morning. And evangelism, every church is called to do those five things. And if you're not doing one of those five things, you're going to be out of balance. Today we're going to be looking at one of those five subjects. I believe Joel already mentioned it. It's the concept of education Before we jump into that, however, let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each of the people that are in this room this morning, and as Joel has already prayed, I do ask that no one would be able to leave here this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God, the God who is the author of all reality, the author and the engineer of creation. And Father, I pray that whatever that interaction is with you that's between that person and with you, my prayer would be that as you knock upon the door of their heart, that you might call them into a relationship with yourself and that they would respond and that would, they would desire to walk with you and to know you all the days of their life. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to read a list of movies, and I want to ask you to think about what these movies have in common, starting with this one. Dead Poets Society. not sure if you guys have ever seen that one. Dead Poets Society. "Aquila and the Bee. Akela and the Bee. School of Rock, one of my personal favorites, Dangerous Minds, Finding Forrester, Mr. Holland's Opus, and Precious. So it's a bunch of different movies. What do they have in common? School, or in particular, a teacher that had a huge impact on someone's life. They're about a teacher who makes a difference in the life of some young person and ultimately sets that young person on a new life trajectory. In other words, their teaching was transformational. Their teaching was transformational transformational education or teaching isn't just the stuff of movies, however. It happens in real life. Several years ago, I was leading a group of about 20 different people. And at the beginning of each of our meetings, we would have a little get-to-know-me question. You know, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite food? One of the questions we asked was, think back to your childhood about someone who had an impact on you. And what was interesting is this was a, a group of adults, people in their upper 30s, their 40s, even into their 50s, And I would say that probably about half of the people, when they talked about someone who had an impact on their life, it was a teacher. It was someone from middle school, it was someone from high school, who had ultimately made a difference in the way that they experienced and saw the world. They had made that subject come alive for that student. Their education led to that student's transformation. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, one of our values, one of the things that we believe we do in order to see flourishing happen in our community, is this idea of education for transformation, education for transformation. In other words, the truth about who God is and the truth about what He's done and the truth about what He's doing ought to change us. It ought to transform us. Far from making us arrogant, biblical truth should make us humble because we actually learn the depth of our brokenness, a brokenness that required a radical sacrifice. Far from making us self-loathing, the biblical truth should make us confident because when we understand the gospel, we realize just how much we're loved, that we're created in God's image, that we're redeemed. Far from making us judgmental, true biblical teaching should make us the most gracious people. We're simply telling another beggar where we found bread. Instead of simply staying in the realm of the theoretical, however, biblical education should lead to real-world application since we are followers of the Word who was made flesh. Let's take a few moments now, and let's see what the Bible has to offer around this idea of education for transformation. Before we begin, let me, let me offer at least one qualification, because as I was writing this, I was very aware that it's one of the questions I would be asking. And In John chapter 3, Jesus tells us of a, uh, or we we're, we're told about a religious leader who comes to visit Jesus at night. His name is Nicodemus. And they're having this conversation about how it is that people enter into the kingdom of God, how it is that they're transformed. And one of the things that Jesus says very clearly there is the way that people are transformed or born again is by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so earlier I talked about how every healthy church does these five different things, worship, uh, education, friendship, restoration, reconciliation, depending on how, what language you want to use. And what I would say is that the Holy Spirit works through each of those in order to transform the lives of God's people. So let's, having made that qualification, let me go back to the sermon now. And we'll begin with the idea that biblical teaching should transform our minds, that education should transform our minds. Let me ask you a quick question Have you actually ever had your mind changed by something that you learned? Sometimes we're faced with information and we want to keep it away. We don't want to be transformed by it. We want to stick to our guns, even if our guns happen to go against the facts of whatever that information is. But oftentimes, information does actually change our mind. If you're my age, which is roughly 50 or 52, then you probably grew up thinking that drinking fruit juice was healthy. Anybody in that category in this room? And, of course, in the right amount, it's absolutely fine. Uh, Throughout high school, I religiously had the same breakfast. I had a glass of orange juice, and a bagel. And so for any of those of you in the room who are nutrition people, you'll know that that's carb plus carb. That is not good. That is not what we recommend for breakfast here. And uh, so throughout, you know, my childhood, I had a you know, glass of orange juice and a bagel. After my mom was diagnosed with diabetes, I learned an interesting fact. And the fact was that both soda and orange juice have the same amount of sugar per cup, about 25 grams. So think about that for a second. The American Heart Association recommends that the average adult male should only consume about 36 grams of sugar per day, so one glass or one cup of orange juice or one cup of Dr. Pepper will provide you with about two-thirds of your sugar for the day. After learning that fact, I stopped drinking juice every day. I could give you lots more of examples, but you get the point. Faced with the truth, I changed my mind I let what was true uh, impact and transform what I believed now if you went around and went to colleges and went to universities and seminaries and if you asked any number of theologians or pastors which book in the Bible focuses the most on teaching then most of them would tell you that it is Paul's letter to the Romans the book of Romans and it's interesting that if you look at the book of Romans if you've ever studied it, you'll know that it's got 16 chapters And the first 11 chapters are all about what's true. It's really all about teaching, education about all sorts of different things. And what Paul teaches the Romans and teaches us is what's true about humans, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, that we worship created things instead of worshiping the one who created them, that our moral performances, no matter how great, always fall short of the glory of God. Paul also teaches us what's true about God, that he loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, he sent his Son to be an atoning sacrifice. He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He sent his Son before we had turned to him. We also learn there that God offers us a righteousness that isn't even our righteousness. He offers us a righteousness that's not our own. It's a righteousness from Christ. We learn in the book of Romans that God is a merciful God the list of what is true about us about God and about redemption taught throughout those 11 chapters of the book of Romans you know again Paul goes on and on and on there's much more in those 11 chapters but in chapter 12 Paul essentially puts on the brakes and he says so what so so what do we do with all of that and Paul's answer is this he says therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Paul essentially says, in light of all this, you should be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we unapologetically teach because we know that what we think and what we believe deeply matters. This sermon that I'm giving right now is a form of teaching. The liturgical elements within worship um, that we did just a few moments ago are another form of teaching. The songs and the hymns that we sing are teaching us, again, what is true about who we are and about who God is and how He came to rescue us. Our various pathway groups that Joel mentioned earlier, again, they focus on education. In those groups, we read and discuss books of the Bible, as well as books where we discuss theology, even our youth ministry, nursery, children's ministry, all of those ministries seek to educate for the sake of transformation. That's our ultimate goal, education for transformation, the renewing of our minds. That's the first point. Education shouldn't just change our minds, however, it should also transform our hearts. That's the next point. We read in John chapter 8 the following. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's a great verse. I actually still hear it used in the broader culture frequently, even though my guess is that many of the people who quote Jesus' words there probably don't remember any longer who first uttered it. When the first disciples first heard Jesus use these words, they probably would have interpreted Jesus' words about being set free in light of living under Roman occupation. We know that Jesus made this statement at the very beginning of his ministry, and that three years later, when Jesus went to the cross, the disciples were still thinking that Jesus had come to be a political Messiah, and so they were depressed because they thought that they had put their money on the wrong horse. But clearly, that's not what Jesus meant. In fact, the context of John chapter 8 is Jesus debating with the Pharisees about how they'll be accepted by God. And Jesus seems to be indicating that the Pharisees are still slaves to sin in spite of their external holiness. Instead of pondering Jesus' teaching or thinking about whether or not it might be true, however, they get defensive, they're offended because their hearts are hard. They cannot or they will not receive the truth. What Jesus meant was that the truth of who He was and what He came to do would set them free, not from the Roman government, but free from their slavery to sin and slavery to a moral law that would only remind them that they couldn't ever measure up. That's what the the book of Galatians teaches us. His following words, that is Jesus' following words, make that point. In verse 34, we read this, Jesus replied, "'Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin.'" Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Although we see this dynamic playing out again and again, perhaps no one illustrates this freedom more than the Apostle Paul. He had been a Pharisee. He had been this religious zealot. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures inside and out, but one of the things that we know is that when he had this transformative experience that he became a totally different person, one of the greatest evangelical scholars of the 20th century, a man named F.F. F. Bruce, entitled his book on Paul's life and thought the following, Paul, apostle of the heart set free, apostle of the heart set free, an encounter with the truth on the road to Emmaus forever changed the heart of a murderer into an agent of grace and mercy. An encounter with the truth transformed Paul's judgmental and arrogant heart into a heart that near the end of his life could write the following. He writes this, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In other words, what happened was is that he, as Paul exposed himself more and more to God, what happened is he became more and more humble. He became more and more aware of the log in his own eye, the where, aware of his brokenness. Of course, teaching should transform our minds. But to be truly transformational, education has to transform our hearts as well. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we don't just want people with good theology. The Pharisees had good theology. In the book of James, we're warned that even the demons believe. American churches are often filled with people who have great knowledge of the Bible, but they are legalistic and judgmental. Biblical teaching should transform our hearts. Listen to the words of Tim Keller. He says this, The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. In other words, true biblical teaching not only changes our minds, but changes our hearts as well. So, Biblical teaching changes our hearts. Check. It transforms our minds. Check. But ultimately, biblical teaching should transform our very lives. There are many passages of Scripture that address just to what degree biblical teaching ought to transform, not just what we think and not just what we feel, but our lives completely. In fact, if our lives aren't transformed, then we really need to ask ourselves some very difficult questions. That's completely appropriate. We can easily go back to Romans 12 where we read, not only to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, but also to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, when we're exposed to what's true about who we are, to who God is, about what he's done to redeem us, then our lives, our very lives, our bodies should be living sacrifices to this one who has redeemed us. The truth about who God is and what he's done should be life-altering. Ten years ago, Laura Hildebrand uh, wrote a book. The book was entitled Unbroken. It appeared on the New York Times bestseller list and remained there for four years, which is unheard of. The book chronicled the life of Ernie Zamperini. Some of you guys are familiar with Louis Zamperini, sorry. An Olympic athlete who, after the 1936 Olympics, was drawn into World War II, where his plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean, and miraculously he survived for 47 days on a life raft on the open sea. Zamparini survived dehydration, starvation. Sharks surrounded their little raft and enemy fire from Japanese zeros, only to be rescued and then placed in a Japanese POW camp for two years where he was tortured mercilessly. After Zamparini was rescued at the end of the war, he returned home, he married, and he reengaged in civic life. His life, however, quickly spiraled out of control. He struggled with with depression, with anger, with PTSD. He engaged in reckless behavior. He became an alcoholic, and his new wife, Cynthia, eventually filed for divorce. Despite the title of Hildebrand's book and Angelina Jolie's movie about his life, Zamperini was anything but unbroken. But then something remarkable happened. His wife, Cynthia, attended a Billy Graham crusade meeting in Los Angeles, and at that meeting she gave her life to Christ. She returned home a totally different person. She withdrew the divorce papers that she had filed, and she committed to loving her husband. Though suspicious, Zamparini later attended one of those same evening meetings of the Billy Graham crusade. The first night he listened to Billy Graham teach the Bible, and he left because he was indignant, he was offended. But something made him return the following night. Offended again in the middle of Graham's talk, Zamparini got up to leave, but instead of turning towards the exit, he found his feet carrying himself down the aisle towards the front of the auditorium. Here is his account. He says this, "'I dropped to my knees and for the first time in my life truly humbled before the Lord. I asked him to forgive me for not having kept the promises I'd made during the war and for my sinful life. I made no excuses.' I did not rationalize, I did not blame. He, that is Graham, had said, "'Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord "'shall be saved.' "'So I took him at his word and begged for his pardon "'and asked Jesus to come into my life.'" Zamparini and Cynthia remained happily married for the next 56 years until her death in 2001. Zamparini passed away 13 years later in 2014 at the age of 97, When CBS interviewed him in order to make a documentary, Zamperini insisted that they include his conversion in their documentary. He said this, my whole life is serving God. If you want this to be authentic, you have to have my conversion in there. I want you to show a picture of Billy Graham and to confirm it. When people hear the name Billy Graham, they think of one thing, and that's the gospel. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, our goal is that education would lead to transformation we believe as the author of hebrews tells us in chapter 4 that the word of god is living and active that it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart when we expose ourselves to the word of god in worship in bible study in youth group in children's ministry then we begin to be transformed, not only our minds, not only our hearts, but our very lives. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us as we are, that you did not leave us in darkness, but that you sent your son Jesus in order to be a light, to reveal to us, Father, who you truly are, a good father who longs for his wayward sons and daughters to come home. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus was a light revealing to us that our sin runs far deeper than we've ever realized, Father. But at the same time, the love that you have for us runs deeper as well. Father, I pray here at Seven Hills Fellowship that we would be faithful in teaching what is true about you, what's true about your word, what's true about Jesus, what's true about how you desire for us to live. Father, let us be faithful in that. And Father, as we are faithful in teaching what is true about you and about your word, I do ask, Father, that you would transform the hearts and the minds and the lives of the people of Seven Hills Fellowship. Father, I pray that we would be deeply humble people, Father. I pray that we would offer grace and mercy. And Father, I also pray that we would be confident knowing uh, that the gospel is a proclamation that we are more loved than we could ever dare to imagine. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.